Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Glaucon and the others begged me not to abandon the argument, but to help in every way to track down what justice and injustice are, and what the truth about their benefits is. So I told them what I had in mind. The investigation we are undertaking is not an easy one, but requires keen eyesight. Therefore, since we aren't clever people, we should adopt the method of investigation that we'd use if, lacking keen eyesight, we were told to read small letters from a distance, and then noticed that the same letters existed elsewhere in a larger size and on a larger surface. We consider it a godsend, I think, to be allowed to read the larger ones first, and then to examine the smaller ones to see whether they really are the same. That's certainly true, said Adamantus, but how is this case similar to our investigation of justice? I'll tell you. We say, don't we, that there is the justice of a single man, and also the justice of a whole city. Certainly. And a city is larger than a single man. It is larger. Perhaps, then, there is more justice in the larger thing, and it will be easier to learn what it is. So, if you're willing, let's first find out what sort of thing justice is in a city, and afterwards look for it in the individual, observing the ways in which the smaller is similar to the larger. That seems fine to me. If we could watch a city coming to be in theory, wouldn't we also see its justice coming to be, and its injustice as well? Probably so. And when that process is completed, we can hope to find what we are looking for more easily. Of course. Do you think we should try to carry it out, then? It's no small task, in my view, so think it over. We have already, said Adamantus. Don't even consider doing anything else. I think a city comes to be because none of us is self-sufficient. But we all need many things. Do you think that a city is founded on any other principle? No. And because people need many things, and because one person calls on a second out of one need, and on a third out of a different need, many people gather in a single place to live together as partners and helpers. And such a settlement is called a city. Isn't that so? It is. And if they share things with one another, giving and taking, they do so because each believes that this is better for himself. That's right. Come then. Let's create a city in theory from its beginnings. And it's our needs, it seems, that will create it. It is indeed. Surely our first and greatest need is to provide food to sustain life. Certainly. And our second is for shelter, and our third for clothes and such. That's right. How, then, will a city be able to provide all this? Won't one person have to be a farmer, another a builder, and another a weaver? And shouldn't we add a cobbler and someone else to provide medical care? All right. So the essential minimum for a city is four or five men? Apparently. And what about this? Must each of them contribute his own work for the common use of all? For example, will a farmer provide food for everyone, spending quadruple the time and labor to provide food to be shared by them all? Or will he not bother about that? producing one quarter of the food in one quarter of the time and spending the other three quarters one in building a house, one in the production of clothes, and one in making shoes, not troubling to associate with the others, but minding his own business on his own. 
Perhaps, Socrates, Adamantus replied, the way you suggested first would be easier than the other. That certainly wouldn't be surprising, for even as you were speaking it occurred to me that in the first place we aren't all born alike, but each of us differs somewhat in nature from the others, one being suited to one task, another to another. Or don't you think so? I do. Second, does one person do a better job if he practices many crafts, or, since he's one person himself, if he practices one? It's clear at any rate, I think, that if one misses the right moment in anything, the work is spoiled. It is. That's because the thing to be done won't wait on the leisure of the doer, but the doer must of necessity pay close attention to his work, rather than treating it as a secondary occupation. Yes, he must. The result, then, is that more plentiful and better quality goods are more easily produced if each person does one thing for which he is naturally suited, does it at the right time, and is released from having to do any of the others. Absolutely. Then, Adamantus, we're going to need more than four citizens to provide the things we've mentioned, for a farmer won't make his own plow, not if it's to be a good one, nor his hoe, nor any of his other farming tools. Neither will a builder, and he too needs lots of things. And the same is true of a weaver and a cobbler, isn't it? It is. Hence, carpenters, metal workers, and many other craftsmen of that sort will share our little city and make it bigger. That's right. Yet it won't be a huge settlement even if we add cowherds, shepherds, and other herdsmen in order that the farmers have cows to do their plowing, the builders have oxen to share with the farmers in hauling their materials, and the weavers and cobblers have hides and fleeces to use. It won't be a small one either if it has to hold all those. Moreover, it's almost impossible to establish a city in a place where nothing has to be imported. Indeed, it is. So we'll need yet further people to import from other cities whatever is needed. Yes. And if an importer goes empty-handed to another city, without a cargo of the things needed by the city from which he's to bring back what his own city needs, he'll come away empty-handed, won't he? So it seems. Therefore, our citizens must not only produce enough for themselves at home, but also goods of the right quality and quantity to satisfy the requirements of others. They must. So we'll need more farmers and other craftsmen in our city. Yes. And others to take care of imports and exports. And they're called merchants, aren't they? Yes. So we'll need merchants, too. Certainly. And if the trade is by sea, we'll need a good many others who know how to sail. A good many, indeed. And how will those in the city itself share the things that each produces? It was for the sake of this that we made their partnership and founded their city. Clearly, they must do it by buying and selling. Then we'll need a marketplace and a currency for such exchange. Certainly. If a farmer or other craftsman brings some of his products to market, and he doesn't arrive at the same time as those who want to exchange things with him, is he to sit idly in the marketplace, away from his own work? Not at all. There will be people who will notice this and provide the requisite service. In well-organized cities, they'll usually be those whose bodies are weakest and who aren't fit to do any other work. They'll stay around the market exchanging money for the goods of those who have something to sell and then exchanging those goods for the money of those who want them. Then to fill this need, there will have to be retailers in our city. For aren't those who establish themselves in the marketplace to provide this service of buying and selling called retailers, while those who travel between cities are called merchants? 
That's right. There are other servants, I think, whose minds alone wouldn't qualify them for membership in our society, but whose bodies are strong enough for labor. These sell the use of their strength for a price called a wage, and hence are themselves called wage earners. Isn't that so? Certainly. So wage earners complete our city? I think so. Well, Adamantus, has our city grown to completeness then? Perhaps it has. Then where are justice and injustice to be found in it? With which of the things we examined did they come in? I've no idea, Socrates, unless it was somewhere in some need that these people have of one another. You may be right, but we must look into it and not grow weary. First, then, let's see what sort of life our citizens will lead when they've been provided for in the way we've been describing. They'll produce bread, wine, clothes, and shoes, won't they? They'll build houses, work naked and barefoot in the summer, and wear adequate clothing and shoes in the winter. For food, they'll knead and cook the flour and meal they've made from wheat and barley. They'll put their honest cakes and loaves on reeds or clean leaves, and, reclining on beds strewn with yew and myrtle, they'll feast with their children, drink their wine, and, crowned with wreaths, hymn the gods. They'll enjoy sex with one another, but bear no more children than their resources allow, lest they fall into either poverty or war. It seems that you make your people feast without any delicacies, Glaucon interrupted. True enough, I said. I was forgetting that they'll obviously need salt, olives, cheese, boiled roots, and vegetables of the sort they cook in the country. We'll give them desserts, too, of course, consisting of figs, chickpeas, and beans. And they'll roast myrtle and acorns before the fire, drinking moderately. And so they'll live in peace and good health. And when they die at a ripe old age, they'll bequeath a similar life to their children. If you were founding a city for pigs, Socrates, he replied, wouldn't you fatten them on the same diet? Then how should I feed these people, Glaucon? I asked. In the conventional way. If they are to suffer hardship, they should recline on proper couches, dine at a table, and have the delicacies and desserts that people have nowadays. All right, I understand. It isn't merely the origin of a city that we're considering, it seems, but the origin of a luxurious city. And that may not be a bad idea, for by examining it, we might very well see how justice and injustice grow up in cities. Yet the true city, in my opinion, is the one we've described, the healthy one, as it were. But let's study a city with a fever if that's what you want. There's nothing to stop us. The things I mentioned earlier and the way of life I described won't satisfy some people, it seems, but couches, tables, and other furniture will have to be added. And, of course, all sorts of delicacies, perfumed oils, incense, prostitutes, and pastries. We mustn't provide them only with the necessities we mentioned at first, such as houses, clothes, and shoes, but painting and embroidery must be begun, and gold, ivory, and the like acquired. Isn't that so? Yes. Then we must enlarge our city, for the healthy one is no longer adequate. We must increase it in size and fill it with a multitude of things that go beyond what is necessary for a city. Hunters, for example, and artists or imitators, many of whom work with shapes and colors, many with music. And there will be poets and their assistants, actors, choral dancers, contractors, and makers of all kinds of devices, including, among other things, those needed for the adornment of women. And so we'll need more servants, too. Or don't you think that we'll need tutors, wet nurses, nannies, beauticians, barbers, chefs, cooks, and swineherds? We didn't need any of these things in our earlier city, 
but we'll need them in this one. And we'll also need many more cattle, won't we, if the people are going to eat meat? Of course. And if we live like that, we'll have a far greater need for doctors than we did before. Much greater. And the land, I suppose, that used to be adequate to feed the population we had then, will cease to be adequate and become too small. What do you think? The same. Then we'll have to seize some of our neighbor's land if we're to have enough pasture and plow land. And won't our neighbors want to seize part of ours as well, if they too have surrendered themselves to the endless acquisition of money and have overstepped the limit of their necessities? That's completely inevitable, Socrates. Then our next step will be war, Glaucon, won't it? It will. We won't say yet whether the effects of war are good or bad, but only that we've now found the origins of war. It comes from those same desires that are most of all responsible for the bad things that happen to cities and the individuals in them. That's right. Then the city must be further enlarged, and not just by a small number either, but by a whole army, which will do battle with the invaders in defense of the city's substantial wealth and all the other things we mentioned. Why aren't the citizens themselves adequate for that purpose? They won't be if the agreement you and the rest of us made when we were founding the city was a good one, for surely we agreed, if you remember, that it's impossible for a single person to practice many crafts or professions well. That's true. Well then, don't you think that warfare is a profession? Of course. Then should we be more concerned about cobbling than about warfare? Not at all. But we prevented a cobbler from trying to be a farmer, weaver, or builder at the same time, and said that he must remain a cobbler in order to produce fine work. And each of the others, too, was to work all his life at a single trade for which he had a natural aptitude, and keep away from all the others, so as not to miss the right moment to practice his own work well. Now, isn't it of the greatest importance that warfare be practiced well? And is fighting a war so easy that a farmer, or a cobbler, or any other craftsman can be a soldier at the same time? Though no one can become so much as a good player of checkers or dice if he considers it only as a sideline and doesn't practice it from childhood. Or can someone pick up a shield or any other weapon or tool of war and immediately perform adequately in an infantry battle or any other kind? No other tool makes anyone who picks it up a craftsman or champion unless he has acquired the requisite knowledge and has had sufficient practice. If tools could make anyone who picked them up an expert, they'd be valuable indeed. Then, to the degree that the work of the guardians is most important, it requires most freedom from other things and the greatest skill and devotion. I should think so. And doesn't it also require a person whose nature is suited to that way of life? Certainly. Then our job, it seems, is to select, if we can, the kind of nature suited to guard the city. It is. By God, it's no trivial task that we've taken on, but insofar as we are able, we mustn't shrink from it. No, we mustn't. Do you think that, when it comes to guarding, there is any difference between the nature of a pedigree young dog and that of a well-born youth? What do you mean? Well, each needs keen senses speed to catch what it sees, and strength in case it has to fight it out with what it captures. They both need all these things. And each must be courageous, if indeed he's to fight well. Of course. And will a horse, a dog, or any other animal be courageous if he isn't spirited? Or haven't you noticed just how invincible and unbeatable spirit is? So that its presence makes the whole soul fearless and unconquerable. I have noticed that. The physical qualities of the guardians are clear, then. Yes. 
and as far as their souls are concerned, they must be spirited. That too. But if they have natures like that, Glaucon, won't they be savage to each other and to the rest of the citizens? By God, it will be hard for them to be anything else. Yet surely they must be gentle to their own people and harsh to the enemy. If they aren't, they won't wait around for others to destroy the city, but will do it themselves first. That's true. What are we to do then? Where are we to find a character that is both gentle and high-spirited at the same time? After all, a gentle nature is the opposite of a spirited one. Apparently. If someone lacks either gentleness or spirit, he can't be a good guardian, yet it seems impossible to combine them. It follows that a good guardian cannot exist. It looks like it. I couldn't see a way out. But on re-examining what had gone before, I said, We deserve to be stuck, for we've lost sight of the analogy we put forward. How do you mean? We overlooked the fact that there are natures of the sort we thought impossible, natures in which these opposites are indeed combined. Where? You can see them in other animals too, but especially in the one to which we compared the guardian. For you know, of course, that a pedigree dog naturally has a character of this sort. He is gentle as can be to those he's used to and knows, but the opposite to those he doesn't know. I do know that. So the combination we want is possible after all, and our search for the good guardian is not contrary to nature. Apparently not. Then do you think that our future guardian, besides being spirited, must also be by nature philosophical? How do you mean? I don't understand. It's something else you see in dogs, and it makes you wonder at the animal. What? When a dog sees someone it doesn't know, it gets angry before anything bad happens to it. But when it knows someone, it welcomes him, even if it has never received anything good from him. Haven't you ever wondered at that? I've never paid attention to it, but obviously that is the way a dog behaves. Surely this is a refined quality in its nature, and one that is truly philosophical. In what way philosophical? Because it judges anything it sees to be either a friend or an enemy, on no other basis than that it knows the one and doesn't know the other. And how could it be anything besides a lover of learning, if it defines what is its own and what is alien to it in terms of knowledge and ignorance? It couldn't. But surely the love of learning is the same thing as philosophy or the love of wisdom. It is. Then may we confidently assume, in the case of a human being too, that if he is to be gentle toward his own and those he knows, he must be a lover of learning and wisdom. We may. Philosophy, spirit, Speed and strength must all, then, be combined in the nature of anyone who is to be a fine and good guardian of our city. Absolutely. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>